Hey folks, welcome back to the Buckle Up Podcast, the Millennial's Guide to the BRI. I'm your host, Enzo Kong. The country we are focusing on today, Italy, is a special one. It is a founding member of the EU, a member of the G7, but also shares a lot of cultural similarities with China and is the first and only G7 country to join the BRI. I'm deeply honored to have Luca Bonadiman as my guest today. Luca is currently a JD candidate at the CUHK. Before that, he spent three years as a residential fellow at the Institute for Global Law and Policy at Harvard Law School. He also holds a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, both in international politics in University of Padova in Italy. Luca is super smart. This episode is one of the smartest Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And for now, enjoy the conversation. Hi, guys. Welcome to the episode of um, Buckle Up. And we are looking at Italy this week. And we are honored to have our guest, Luca Bonadiman from Italy, to be here. Hi, Luca. Hi, hi, Enzo. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, um, well, Luca actually has a very special connection to Hong Kong because he is doing a Juris Doctor degree in CUHK right now. And he back, before that, he was doing um, a degree in politics and international relations and human rights in, back in Europe. So can you tell us what brought you to Hong Kong and Asia in the first place? Yeah, it's a little bit of a long story in the sense that I, I've always been interested in the globalization dynamic, right? Um, and Italy is a little bit of a conservative country, especially academically speaking. In my view, it's kind of conservative. So if you're interested in international law and international affairs, it is likely that you will be the directed to study international relations uh, in political science. Now, the advantage of this arrangement is that you can move a lot around the world. You can do exchange programs, you can do visiting programs, you can do summer schools. Uh, while if you're, if you're studying law in Italy, um, it's very unlikely that you will be able to enjoy any possibility. If you're stuck in Italy, your professional career will probably be in Italy with some exception. There is no doubt that, you know, the creation of a European legal market is slightly and slowly changing that. So maybe let's see in the future. But compared to many friends who study law, I was able to do exchange programs since an early stage. Um, and I've been able to study for variable periods of time, one month, three months, six months, sometimes a year, um, to university uh, in the Netherlands, uh, in Finland, Sweden, in Norway, um, in Switzerland. So I, I move a lot around the European continent. I had the opportunity to study twice uh, in the United States. The first time to study mostly English, so I went to an English program at Hunter College in New York. And if you think about it, one of the worst places to go to study English is probably New York because <laughs> nobody's really speaking any English there. Um, <laughs> and then I went to Boston University where I spent a semester. Um, and, and so I had this very broad experience with the Western world mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a very loose sense. I, I moved around Europe. I was familiar with the European context. I went to the United States. I was familiar with the American way of life. And I then had the opportunity to do a trainship period with the European Union delegation to the United Nations in New York. And during that period of time, I was engaging with, you know, the rest of the world. And to me, it started to be very apparent that 
it was a sensation that I had since before, because sorry if I go back in time, after my bachelor degree, when I graduated in 2010, I had the opportunity to spend a couple of months in Manila oh. doing a research on children living on the street as part mm. of my human rights interest. And I saw a part of the world that was so far and so different from anything that I could read on the books. Because, I mean, if you read manuals, if you need, read articles, you really, if your experience of the world is in the West, what you read is just a projection. You just project your own self-image on the rest of the world. And you imagine it to be very similar. And since then, I grew a fascination because compared to the West, one of the positive differences that I experienced in Southeast Asia was an excitement, a ferment. You know, you meet young people and they are excited about life. I can tell you it's hardly the same <laughs> in the rest of the world here. Um, and so I thought I need to learn more uh, about that part of the world. This belief got reinforced when I was engaging, uh, when I was engaging with other people at the United Nations. I was like, I need to understand more what's going on on that part of the world. And I thought that Hong Kong was a pretty excellent crossroad. It was an intersection point or a good standpoint because it would allow you to engage with many different parts of Southeast Asia, China, and right. then also the rest of Asia, such as Japan and Korea. <clears throat> and, and, I took the, and I took the generous offer of Hong Kong because at the time in which there was a ravaging economic crisis in Europe for which if you wanted to do a PhD you would find almost no money mm -hmm. to do it in any European university. Uh, Hong Kong had a number of scholarships and so I was offered one and I did my PhD in Hong Kong and I arrived there the first time in 2013 and then ever since I've been pretty much back and forth. Now the interesting part about my path has been that I started in political science, having an interest mostly in power dynamics. And for that, I was, I was taking human rights as, a, as an indicator of where you can see power struggles, where people mm -hmm. are unsatisfied with the leadership. Let's put it this way. <clears throat> and I was interested in the way different systems manage power and human rights were very useful for that. But my, again, my interest is generally speaking power, how it is exercised economically, socially, politically. And the more you go through the various historical examples and the various contemporary examples, and the more you realize that it's all about the law. So I took an interest in international law first, and then progressively uh, I've been surrounded by lawyers all the time in, the, in, in these past five to seven years. And indeed, I did my PhD in law. So it was at the School of Law, City University. And after that, I had the opportunity of spending about three years at the Institute for Global Law and Policy at Harvard Law School. And so it, I was in a law school, despite the fact that I was never truly trained as a lawyer. So after that, I felt that I had to fix this handicap. And I decided to go for a JD to maybe transition to a full lawyer career which I, I, I don't know, I, I grew a fascination. I, I have some friends who became corporate lawyers fairly on in their life, 26, mm. and they're trying to escape into academia because they, they, they say that corporate lawyer careers are a nightmare. But I don't know, I, I, I think it's very fascinating to see the world through the lenses of the law because you understand how power is managed. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, well, you have told me the other day about the... Um, 
historic and cultural ties between Italy and China. Maybe that's why you find it comfortable to stay here. So, I mean, I, I, I by no means uh, buy in the stereotype, but when I watch um, works like The Godfather or The Sopranos, mm. I, I can really um, smell the values of family, loyalty and honor, which is quite similar to the Chinese values. So, I mean, can, can you tell us more about that? Well, I, for sure, my, and this is, you know, my opinion, which is if you ask another Italian, you can have another opinion. So right. I don't, I'm not speaking for anybody here. Of course. But my, my appreciation of the time that I spent, at least in Hong Kong, has shown me that uh, Italy and China have a common history in the sense that these were large empires a long time ago. And then these empires had a, let's say, unfortunate history with many variations. So the, the social system ended up relying largely on the family as the backbone of society. And I believe that to this day in positive and in negative, because we know that for example, familyism and clientelism and some extreme phenomena that are generally called like mafia tend to be undesirable to some extent. Um, but both Italy and China are system that grow out of family power you know people like to be affiliated with the family they will i am still you know i'm here for holidays i'm with my family despite my age and i enjoy that very much um so the family becomes your point of origin and your roots into the world both economies are heavily reliant on manufacturing and on the creativity and ability of individual entrepreneurs that use their own knowledge and the social web, social connection to create economic realities that to this day, you know, I envy these people. I think they are very, very smart. Um, I wouldn't know where to start if I, if I had to set up an enterprise, I'm clueless. And similarly, China and Italy had alternating phases of state intervention in the economy. So if you want to also see the grand picture, China today has, has a number of uh, state-owned enterprises and Italy historically had a number of state-owned enterprises. Now we have tried to move more towards a liberal economy, which is entirely privatized, but the state is still there watching from the window and occasionally intervening. As anyone who dealt with Italy recently knows about banks, about Alitalia and, mm -hmm. and, and other distressed companies. I mean, Italy remains a country that is concerned about its own enterprises and occasionally intervene. Um, I think China would, I can't, I don't know generally, but I think that the, the approach that the Chinese leadership has is also similar to that of Italy, that you wanna grow your own enterprises. And once they are mature and able to stand on their own, you will want them to operate as private enterprises. Um, and of course, this, this idea can change over time, depending by the circumstances, right? So, but I think for a long time, the idea was to cultivate strong economic actors uh, with the backing of the state in order for them to be able to compete as private enterprises later on on the free market. Um, so I think this is another similarities. There are social, historical and economic similarities between the two countries. And, and, a, number, and a number of area contention, you know, we, we don't know where the spaghetti or noodles came from. We don't know where gelato ice cream was born you know we, we litigate on these things we, I, I i personally don't don't necessarily say that italy was first I, I, I don't know. well i so yeah similarities in doing business as well as the adaptive culture might be why it 
Italy is the first um, G7 country to join the Baton Road Initiative um, back in March 2019. So, um, so back then, the Italian government was um, signing an MOU with President Xi Jinping, and they inked a total of 29 deals worth 2.5 billion euros. And um, two years have passed, and we have seen a few deals happening or not happening. So maybe we'll get more insights as we go into the deals. But in general, can you tell us um, what the Burden Road Initiative means to a country like Italy? I would say if you look at the history of Italy, um, especially during the Cold War, Italy was a, a country always 50-50. You know, you would never know if at any point in time the Communist Party would be able to take over or whether the uh, Christian Democrats would maintain power. Mm. So this was a way for Italy to flirt with both sides of the Iron Curtain. Um, and, and I think financially and politically, Italy has benefited from this uncertain condition in the sense that the, the American partnership needed to be cultivated much more than maybe the Americans would have wanted. We became relatively special partners of the U.S., but at the same time, Italy was able to maintain very good ties with the Soviet Union to the point that, you know, we, we were building cities and factories that keep the name of um, communist politicians in Italy. So there were ties with both sides and both sides were giving money to Italy. And if you look at this moment in history, there is some people say that we're going into a new Cold War or something that really looks similar to a Cold War. And I suppose that one reason for which Italy decided to join is that at the time in which in Italy, the, the the political, the government was made of populist political forces, the Five Star Movement, the Liga North, which caused Italy to lose some degree of credibility. I mean, they were not seen very positively at the European level. So within the European Union, we were seen as a problematic country. Um, at the global level, there was skepticism because this populist turn happened before Donald Trump, as a matter of fact. And I think when Donald Trump came about, the feeling was that the special friendship with the United States was being eroded, that in Europe we were having a secondary role. We were put at the margin of a dynamic between Germany and France. So flirting with China was a good way to somehow gain attention from these other partners and say, hey, pay attention because we want to be an important in the system, we want to maintain a, a, a primary position in the conversation. And if you don't treat us well, we just we just go with the others. So is 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 a little bit. I think you would have to understand the particular political context of Italy at the time. But I also do believe that there were strict economic reasons for doing that, in the sense that China is expanding. And you can take these as a fact or as a threat, but either way, you have to try to find ways to cope with this reality. And, and indeed, if we go back in time to the banking crisis and the financial crisis of 2007, 2009, 2012, because especially in Europe at the beginning, we didn't immediately feel the pain. Italy in particular started to suffer for the consequence of the financial crisis from 2009 onwards. And during that financial crisis, China had the opportunity to come and 
develop financial ties with Europe and especially Italy. Italy is infamously a cash-strapped country. Many small, medium enterprises do not have access to capital and banks do not have much capital in their reserves. So China saw this as an opportunity to develop financial ties and mm -hmm. make acquisitions in the European market as an investor. And for this reason, you know, China started to grow uh, a much more significant presence in Europe, especially in countries like Italy um, and Greece, which were a little bit weaker in, and they had a harder time. You know, if Italy was going on the, on the main markets and say, please lend me money, uh, at the time, the interest rate was very unfavorable. Uh, the conditions were unfavorable. There were political ties and conditionalities being imposed. While China was mostly interested, it was generous because China had to find a way into this market. Um, and it was a good opportunity for them. Now, the question is, after a situation of crisis, as things normalize, how does China improve uh, its cooperation and, um, and also investment with, with, with the European market, which is famously very protective, very attentive of its own interests? Um, and I think the Belt and Road is partly uh, an answer to that. I think Italy is in a market of interest precisely because there are many small medium enterprises that feed into the German exporting market and China might be interested in, in capturing some of these small medium enterprises for its own investment. And, and indeed we've seen heavy Chinese investment, not only in soccer, we know that now a number of Italian soccer teams are in the hands of Chinese investors. But, but if you look to, for example, uh, the yachting industry, there have been some acquisitions. In many areas, Chinese investors have started to either buy or purchase shares in Italian companies. But this is still a small picture. I think that the big picture is how will China manage to <clears throat> capture more gains within the broader European market and the main emerging market in Europe at the moment is the Eastern European market, <clears throat> which is also some, let's say, potential political ties in the sense that this is the former Soviet bloc. So China might have an advantage in understanding how historically their economies have developed. So they might have a better understanding of the situation, the local situation over there. They might have opportunities to develop ties politically and economically. Now, the question is, how do you reach the Eastern European market? If you wanna, if you wanna especially sell your own goods, um, you need to reach those places. And so China has developed railways. They run through Central, Central Asia, Russia, and reach Eastern Europe. But those are very slow and problematic because these right. are less stable areas of the world. To this day, the main way to access European markets is through containers via, via the sea, via sea shipment. So China acquired a number of ports in, um, in Greece, and Italy was concerned that if China was able to develop a rail link through the Balkans, um, they could just go around Italy. So Italy was willing to establish a partnership, especially for infrastructure. Italy already has very good railways so you can travel relatively easily you can move goods in italy by rail relatively easily so china could gain an access to eastern european markets by moving goods into Euro into italian ports then through the railways into not just the western market france germany etc 
but also into Eastern European market, which is the one that has yet to fully develop. Um, I think German market, French market, Italian markets are pretty saturated. So indeed, these are markets that try to export rather than import uh, products. While Eastern European market is still still fluid dynamic, there is room for development. And, um, and I think China want to enter the game, not only for economic reasons, but also for political reasons. Gaining a little bit of influence in that part of Europe would limit the ability of Europe to dictate, of the European Union to dictate economic standard um, and, and norms. Although I think China now is running into troubles for that. If you have seen, um, there have been some defection, especially among Baltic countries, saying that they don't see that much of an advantage in being part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So I, I think that while China is growing in its, its economic power and appeal, there is a problem of skepticism as to whether the direction of the political leadership, you know, whenever you have nationalism and some forms of uh, authoritarianism, the reaction is we, we want to take this carefully because we don't know where it's going. It's, it becomes more unpredictable. So especially if you're a small country, you don't want to become dependent. Uh, you don't, you don't want to suffer retaliation. And I think the experience with Australia in the current trade war with China is telling many smaller countries that they, they, they risk a lot in developing ties that would give the upper hand to, to China. Um, and, and indeed, I think that Italy has put on hold a number of potential deals and they are scrutinizing existing deals to a lesser extent, but they are wary of the potential consequences. Now, what's the upside for a young, young person in this? I don't think that when it comes to economic output, this would really change much. But if you're a lawyer, the more political instability you have, the more you need the skills and craft of the lawyer to securitize transactions. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is whether you would do that in Hong Kong or whether you would do that in Singapore or whether you would do that in Milan or Rome. Now, these are open questions. Um, I think that so far, Hong Kong has defended pretty well its ability to be the commercial um, let's say the, the place where you go to make deals um, if you wanted to transact with China. It has to defend these position, both in terms of banking services and in terms of uh, lawyering services. I think that not every, like big corporation are able to assess the risk and manage the risk without necessarily relying on lawyers. They can, you know, they can strategize, they can develop lobbying and political ties. They have resources to edge the risk in many different ways. But the, the promise of the Belt and Road Initiative was also to empower a number of small, medium enterprises that would create an ecosystem around the bigger enterprises where this initiative would develop. Now, these smaller enterprises, small, medium enterprises would face significant risk also because they don't have the means to, um, you know, assess investment arbitration. They don't have the money for doing that. So they can only rely on good contracts that can be adjudicated at a relatively cheap price in reliable fora. And, and I hope that Hong Kong will remain. I'm doing a JD in Hong Kong because mm. I'm betting on Hong Kong doubling down on, on, on this particular position. But I think these are, these, these are important questions. And I think if you're a lawyer, 
today, if you're a young lawyer, you want to find creative solution to reassure these small medium enterprises, to reassure small investors that they can find through law ways to make the investment and also their operation safe. Um, so I think it's, it's a good opportunity for them. With regard to the maritime potential that you mentioned for Italy that China sees, why don't we go deeper into the deal signed with Port of Trieste with um, China Communications Construction Company back in 2019. And so when you look at the map, Trieste is located in northern Italy. And if you pass through it, you can easily reach Hungary, Germany, and Austria. So it's... um, Yes, well, it's well, very strategic well, because you can you can reach Germany, you can reach the Balkan uh, countries, yep. uh, and you can reach every Eastern European country. So it's it's a ve- it's very strategically located from that point of view. Yes. Yes, but um, so the, the the aims are good, the intentions are good, but um, we are also seeing some drawbacks from or some or some um, stagnant developments from the project. Um, for example, actually little progress has been made since the, since the MOU was signed in 2019. And we have also seen that the Germany company, HHLA, took a controlling stake in the development of the new logistic platform, platform of the port. So would, would that mean that um, the Chinese company's opportunity in participating in the project has been minimized? Well, so let me address a couple of points here, because it's a question that raises other questions that are a little bit hidden in it. So I, for a young lawyer from either Hong Kong or China, I think that there are vast opportunities for one reason. China is expanding, but its ability to protect legally its own interest abroad has not kept pace. So while you have US and European global law firms, China is only now managing through some mergers and acquisition to reach also other markets with legal services. So as you come into a European market, you need to have the ability to understand the European game. You need to have good advisors. This is This is something that I would call the risk of falling victim of your own worldview and your own narrative. You have to be able, you have to be able to understand where you're going, what are the risks. And this is not just China. I mean, every every reality commits mistakes because it assumes that where they are going is very similar or they do only superficial assessment. Germany is the one country in the European Union that is the most wary about China as a not necessarily a threat, but as a serious strategic competitor. And they are very wary that the world is organized around commercial routes and the ability to control these commercial routes. This is, this is the key. If you, if you study the history of international law, all of, all of the conflicts, all of the main conflicts and the, the major development in international law have, moved, have revolved around controlling commercial routes. Even now, if you, if you see the tension around the North Pole and the possibility to have uh, commercial routes there is about commercial routes, who can control them, who can tax them, et cetera, et cetera. The Belt and Road Initiative is an attempt to create as many commercial routes as possible so that you diversify the routes through which you can ship your own goods and, and also to try to control those very routes. Um, a lot of the colonial experience 
uh, was a sort of consequence of the inability of European traders to preserve control only by economic means of commercial routes. And so the states enter into the play and use military power to do occupation. So there is that. Um, but so Germany is wary of the fact that you need to pay attention to who controls trade routes and how they control these trade routes. Ports and uh, the South China Sea is the utmost example of the anxiety that one of the main trade routes might be entirely controlled by China. No country other than China may want that to happen. So controlling trade routes is important. Controlling ports is important. Germany doesn't want, and indeed Germany has reacted pretty uh, aggressively in uh, then acquiring or uh, limiting the ability of China to use ports in Greece and Italy. So these financial operations have to be understood in this context. Germany want to maintain assets. And if you think about it historically, one of the reasons why Germany at some point ended up in a conflict or started to invade other countries is because it, was, it couldn't have access to the sea. It wanted to have an access to sea routes that are the main way through which today um, goods are move around the world, right? So it's very important to have access to ports. I don't think this is this decreased the ability of Chinese investors in Europe or Chinese company in Europe. I think Chinese investors and companies have to step up their game, refine their strategies. I mean, you cannot play the game that you played during the financial crisis in which the general distress of all companies in the European Union allow easy access to capital. Um, you have to go through more layers, you probably need to establish a European presence that would reassure the European Union that there would be some degree of oversight that would shield operation from potential political influences. I wouldn't say that the political influence would be neutralized, but it would at least be under control so that you cannot be blackmailed, you will not be kept out from certain trade routes. So I think Chinese investors have enormous opportunities uh, in the European continent. And I also think the European investors have fantastic opportunities in China, especially with the uh, new Bay Area initiative. But <clears throat> investors need to become a little bit more knowledgeable about the political and social reality. It cannot be just about numbers. It cannot just be a spreadsheet that tells you you will have a return on investment of 12%, 20%. You need to learn more what are the political conditions of the market in which you enter? Um, and I think, again, this is a fantastic opportunity for lawyers because lawyers translate political risk in legal instruments that would defend the interest of an investor. So, I, and I would invite my colleagues also in, in Hong Kong to, to consider spending summer schools or semesters in Europe or abroad to, to really understand not just how law is different there, but also the political and social context. You need to have a social dialogue, you need to have a political dialogue. This would be my view of, of the current situation. And I think if, you, if we want to discuss, for example, about the uh, stall China, Europe, European Union investment. Agreement. Right, the investment deal, um, which was stalled yes, in the European Parliament, right? Yes, it is stalled for political reasons, and we, we can disagree um, on the reasons that bring to the stall. Um, but technically speaking, China has a significant presence in Europe, um, but there is an element of inequality because 
to this day, many European companies have limited access, especially when it comes to services, to the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. And, and I think on both sides, there is a desire to create a more, a more equal situation because also China wants to protect its own investment now in Europe. I would want to see more openness in the Chinese market and at the same time, a little bit more rules for Chinese investment that come into Europe. And, but I don't want the Chinese investors to think that this is somehow an anti-China sentiment. It's just, I think rules benefit everybody. A Chinese investor that come here has more guarantees in its ability to invest in the sense that he would know he or she would know where they're putting the money and how they can protect the investment, right? So rules protect everybody. This is the only beauty of the law. If you have a fair legal system, you can protect every side in the transaction. Again, I think there is a call for young people to think creatively through the law to prevent that, to find ways, because the law is a language. And is a language that bridge different cultures. Lawyers are translators of competing interests and competing cultures. So you can bridge these differences. And I think so the lawyers should focus not only about making money out of you know financial transaction, but also helping their clients to understand better what's going on on both sides of the equation. So be cultural mediators <clears throat> for. Yes. Is there something more we can do on a more um, down-to-earth level? I mean, when you when you ask the young people in Italy or the general population, my guess is most of them haven't even heard of the Burden Road Initiative. So it's, it's not only about um, the confidence in, in the laws in the system, but also the awareness and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the most basic attitude. So is there something we can do on the soft power side? Yes. So as you know, China did try a soft power um, initiative. There are many Confucius Institute all over right. the world. Europe and Italy have a number. They try to, but if you come to Europe with a state-led initiative, it's inevitable that there will be some degree of skepticism that this initiative is to be taken with some degree of carefulness. You know, there might be propaganda going on. Mm. There might be maybe even espionage going on. So to what extent you should come close to that reality? Um, So the question is whether the growing civil society and business community of China can do something. If you see, for example, when it comes to the vaccination campaign in Hong Kong, there was a turning point in which the business community took initiatives uh, by, you know, having lucky draws, by asking their people to get vaccinated. And there was a much more positive response because I think people feel more responsive to social realities and economic realities than political realities. And I think this is true everywhere. So the question is, what can young people do? And I can tell you, I think it's important, especially to my colleagues in Hong Kong, I would say, don't be afraid to feel insecure. When I I traveled the world a lot, so I had to question my own assumption, my own cultural roots, my own also pride, you know, as you grow up in a system that tells you, obviously, your country is the best, you're the best in the world. And then you go in the rest of the world and you encounter people that say, well, actually, you're cool, but not the best. 
but I think the big challenge that exists today, and I think Hong Kong, Hong Kong plays a major role in this, um, because Hong Kong is a bridge between China and the rest of the world. Right. And this bridge should not be only about money. It should also be about dialogue. Culture, dialogue. Yeah, I think there is a dialogue problem between China and the rest of the world. And it's a problem on both sides. I personally try to do my part whenever people ask me about it to explain a little bit more what I witness. Um, and, but I think there has to be an effort also on the other side in trying to understand more. And instead of being defensive, instead of feeling these attacks as, as, as just a threat, um, also as an opportunity to, to try to engage in a different way. And this has to be at the social level. I think that if I'm thinking of a great opportunity uh, for young people, not necessarily just in law, but also small medium enterprises, the initiative of the Belt and Road Initiative, to some extent, was also to empower small medium enterprises in China and in the in the countries where they were going. So it could be it could be a bottom up initiative. It could be that um, enterprises, small medium enterprises in Italy, managed to establish ties with small medium enterprises in the rest of the Belt and Road Initiative. That could be a framework in which these kind of commercial agreements are facilitated. And that's the part that concerns lawyers. Lawyers need to create a vision, a legal vision for this reality. Um, so they, we need to create um, dispute resolution mechanisms that are reliable and effective. We need to create contracts that are somehow fair, that wouldn't really um, give the upper hand to any particular side so that the people who enter into these agreements feel that they, they are protected, etc. So I think that the, the opportunity in the Belt and Road Initiative is mostly a view that you could develop um, trade routes bottom up, bottom up, because the political power uh, has a limited ability to influence these grand processes. Um, but I think that especially now that Hong Kong, for example, is trying to expand in the vision of the Grand, Grand Bay Area initiative, that could be the uh, gravitational center of a number of initiatives that progressively expand and become a bottom-up legal entrepreneurship right. that empowers small medium enterprises, that create new global supply chains. I think COVID really displaced a number of global supply chains. And, and now there is the opportunity to redraw some of them uh, for good or bad. My, my view is always that, that we should be on the side of people. So we want people to have better living conditions. Right. Um, so again, thanks for your inspiring sharing today and um, look forward to talking to you again. So, I, um, I'm glad of the opportunity to share what is, you know, it's not, it's my privilege to have the opportunity to talk with virtually to other people and, uh, to all my friends in Hong Kong, I will be back, hopefully, uh, unless my area suddenly becomes red and I'm barred from traveling. But I will be back in Hong Kong early September, and, uh, and I really look forward to be again, possibly, uh, in class with colleagues. So I, right. I really look forward to discuss more. Okay. Look Thank forward you for to seeing you in person. Thanks. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye-bye.